Howdy. Welcome to History of Our Mysteries. I am your host, Jack Young. What you are about to hear are stories of untold mystery. Sit back and relax while we mystify you with tales of wonder, terror, suspense, and the unknown. If you enjoy this podcast, don't forget to subscribe to this channel and check in every Friday at 9pm. Finally, we are also accepting donations at the link below. Find somewhere dark and learn about the history of our mysteries. Alrighty, everybody, welcome back to History of Our Mysteries. This is going to be episode eight. I deeply apologize for the fact that it's been seven months since I've done an episode. Life goes on, and I just haven't had the time to be able to uh, make an episode, but I still have the love to do it. So I've taken the time to finish this episode. So expect more episodes more commonly in the future. Uh, things have kind of slowed down for me, so that's good. So I'm going to do something a little bit different with this episode. Usually the episodes I do are more based on the mystery and the unknown uh, with a topic. This one is going to have more to do with the story. So this one is a very tragic story. It's very significant in history, but it is still technically unsolved. So I tried to take a crack at it myself. Uh, it's a very popular uh, topic to, that's discussed, um, not really with our generation, but it was very important for uh, its time and its significance today. I'm also gonna bring back something that I did on the first episode and I haven't really done it since then because, well, actually, I don't know why I haven't done it, but I, I, I like it. And if y'all like it, uh, please let me know. So we're going to start the episode with, and I'm going to keep doing it if I like it and y'all like it, but we're going to do an on this day of when I recorded. So uh, it's going to have the historical events that happened on the day that I recorded. Now, <laughs> I wrote the script for this uh, episode all the way back in November 15th, so it's been more than a month since I've been able to do this, So, and I, I apologize for that too, but here's the first on this day for this podcast episode. So, on this day, on November 15th, in 1492, Christopher Columbus writes what is believed to be the first reference to tobacco. In 1720, Pirates Anne Bonny, Mary Reed, and Calico Jack are captured and brought to Spanish Town, Jamaica, for trial. In 1777, the Articles of Confederation, the predecessor to the U.S. Constitution, was ratified by the Continental Congress. 1904, King C. Gillette patents the Gillette Blade. 1932, the Walt Disney Art School is created. In 1969, Around 2 million citizens take part in the Vietnam War moratorium demonstration across the U.S. 1969. The first Wendy's was opened by founder Dave Thomas in Columbus, Ohio. 1979 and 1985. In 1979, a plane had tried to make an emergency landing after discovering a package in the cargo hold from the Unabomber. And the Unabomber... Uh, that might be a topic that I go into at some other point, although the Unabomber has been found and, you know, uh, tried and convicted. In 1985, a research assistant is injured after opening a package designed for the University of Michigan professor. So 
uh, and that's the same, uh, the Unabomber was responsible for that event as well. So, in 2001, Microsoft sells their first Xbox in the United States. And uh, all these on this day dates came from onthisday.com. Marks the 40th anniversary of an event that had all of America, and especially the Chicago area in Illinois, in panic within the span of 24 hours. Starting at 6.15 a.m. on September 29th, 13-year-old Mary Kellerman stated to her father that she had a cold and needed to stay home from school. After, her father noticed that Mary then went to the bathroom to extra-strength Tylenol that her mother had purchased the night before. Just seconds later, though, her father heard coughing and then a loud thud hitting the floor. When Mary's father came to her aid, her eyes were fixed and dilated, her breathing extremely shallow, with her life very quickly being sucked away. By the time the ambulance had reached Mary, she had gone into full cardiac arrest. At the hospital, there was nothing the staff could do but get a priest to read Mary her last rites. At 9.56 a.m., Mary was pronounced dead. At 11 a.m., Adam Janus had spent his day off taking his wife, son, and daughter to run errands. His errands were grocery shopping. Adam had bought multiple items, steaks, lilies for his wife Teresa, and a bottle of extra-strength Tylenol. After getting home from their errands, Adam had put away his grocery store purchases and went into the bathroom where he had taken two capsules of extra-strength Tylenol. Afterwards, Teresa noticed Adam coming out of the bathroom, clutching his chest and complaining of pain. They both went into the bedroom, and Teresa had noticed two things about Adam. For one, his eyes were both fixed and dilated. His breathing was getting very shallow. Teresa had rushed outside for her neighbor, who luckily was a nurse, to help resuscitate Adam. Once at the hospital, the doctors who were trying to revive Adam could never again get his heartbeat back to normal rhythm. Tragically, Adam Janus was pronounced dead at 3.15 p.m. At 3.45, roughly 30 minutes after Adam Janus had died, 27-year-old Mary Rayner was taking care of her newborn son when a headache she had had all day reached an all-time high. After advice from her doctor, she took two extra-strength Tylenol to aid her headache. Immediately, she began to go to her bathroom after feeling dizziness, but fell onto a kitchen chair and began having severe seizures. When a police officer arrived to the house, he noticed one characteristic of Rainer's behavior. Her eyes were fixed and dilated. With Mary's husband and the on-site officer keeping the other children and the family from coming downstairs due to panic and confusion, the scene was horrible and scarring. After going to the hospital, Mary Rayner had one difference so far. She was not dead by the hour. Tragically, Mary Rayner placed on life support and had passed away the next day. And for the next victims, surprisingly and unfortunately, we go back to the Janus house for the next event in our timeline. At 5.15 p.m., Adam's brother and sister-in-law Stanley and Teresa Janus arrived at the Janus house to make immediate funeral plans for Adam Janus. The couple were newlyweds who had just gotten married three months prior. 
Living with chronic back pain and the weight of a horrible day, Stanley had developed a headache. Tylenol bottle. Stanley took two capsules from the bottle for him and his wife Teresa, who also had a headache. Seconds later, Stanley and Teresa both came out clenching their chests. Stanley then collapsed into older brother Joseph. While waiting for an ambulance, their mother took the young couple to the very same neighbor who assisted Adam just hours earlier. At the hospital, the very same doctor and nurses began trying to revive the second and third Janus patients. Despite their best efforts, Stanley was pronounced dead at 8.15 p.m., and Teresa on life support with no chance of recovery. Teresa then died at 11.30 p.m. At 6.45 p.m., 31-year-old Mary McFarlane was working her regular shift at the Illinois Bell Telephone Store at the Yorktown Shopping Center. With the constant exposure to fluorescent lights and complaining customers, Mary had developed a migraine. In order to deal with this, she took out two Tylenol capsules from a bottle in her purse and quickly returned to the sales floor. Not even 10 minutes later, co-workers recalled Mary coming back into the break room, stating, I don't feel good. Moments later, she collapsed onto the floor. After paramedics took her to the hospital, doctors told her immediate family that she had suffered a stroke. Mary McFarland never regained consciousness and died a few hours later. She had two kids that were her life, and she was also beginning to date a new guy after a nasty divorce. Her kids and her new boyfriend would never see her alive again. At 8.34 p.m., the final confirmed tragedy of this chain of events happened. United flight attendant Paula Prince landed at O'Hare and noted her work friend Jean Levengood would also be arriving back in an hour. Paula wanted to see her, so she left her a note saying, Let's meet for a drink later. I have exciting news to tell you. After leaving the note, Paula left and entered a Walgreens close to the building. The only thing she bought, a single bottle of extra strength Tylenol. Getting home, Paula unpacked and took her single capsule from the bottle that she just bought. Jean and Paula's sister would find her two days later, lifeless. During the funeral, a striking man approached Regula and introduced himself. He and Paula had met on one of their flights and fell in love instantly. They were going to plan an ongoing Sirius and Mary. He was the exciting news that Paula was going to tell Jean that night. Chapter 2 What Happened to the Seven Victims? It was only through communicating with the Interior Arlington Heights Fire Department that a connection was made. Chuck Kramer, who responded to Mary Kellerman's call, and Phil Capitelli, who responded to the Janice calls, both found out from each other that the common factor was that all these victims took Tylenol before their similar symptoms of collapsing and having dilated and fixed eyes. But was it the Tylenol? The two then had Janus blood samples tested along with the bottles brought in for investigation. It was only after smelling the bottles that both men immediately knew what killed everyone so suddenly. Potassium cyanide. Cyanide, if ingested, 
keeps oxygen reaching cells in the body. When this happens, you will see pain in the chest, nausea, dizziness, eye dilation, cardiac arrest, and difficulty breathing. They then found out every single contaminated bottle all had the same lot code, MC2880, distributed from Pennsylvania on April 26th, 1982. It was all coming together. But then the next big question was, who was doing this and why? While the police were working on the investigation, the news outlets and Johnson & Johnson, the distributors of Tylenol, were issuing major recalls of Tylenol and spreading awareness of the possible mass poisoning. Luckily, no one else succumbed to more Tylenol deaths, and it was all due to public awareness and PR recovery from J&J. Unfortunately, however, this left seven young victims with no chance at recovery and a no chance at a long fulfilling life. And finally, no chance to say goodbye to their loved ones. Frighteningly, this also left a serial poisoner still free and still able to poison more. I, my opinion is, can you imagine living in 1982 and having to, you know, see this in a newspaper or, you know, on your news as breaking news, you know, uh, seven people have died mass poisoning of Tylenol, the most used medicine in the whole world. I would freak out because, you know, I'd, I'll take Tylenol once a week, you know, whether it be that or ibuprofen or Advil, I, I will, I will take one of those three pills at least once a week. And I cannot imagine instantly dying from something so trivial as taking your daily medicine. That is a very scary thing. And I, I cannot imagine the pain and suffering all seven of these victims went through while they were dying. A very, you know, fast and tragic death. And the suddenness of it and abruptness of it all, you know, I can't imagine the pain the families and friends and, you know, children and husbands and wives felt when they noticed their loved ones were dying so quickly and out of nowhere and for something so trivial. It's, it's just shocking to me. I'm going to get in. There's a, there is a third chapter, and I'm going to talk about the significance uh, of this event in the third chapter. But to me, it's, I don't know. I feel like the aftermath of this should have happened sooner. I feel like every medicine company should have anticipated something like this and thought of what they do now. But it's just a really sad thing to see. And... Even though it was 40 years ago, almost to this day, it was back in November, I think it was exactly 40 years ago. It may feel like a long time for someone my age. I mean, I wasn't even alive at that time. That's literally like double my age. But, you know, those were, pe those were living people. You know, those were, those were people that were just living their lives and they just died suddenly. And stuff like that can happen today too. And it's, it, even though it, like I said, it feels like it was a long time ago, it still kind of hits me because I'm like, that could happen to me. You know, cyanide is still a very real thing and it can be put in anything. And I, I don't know what cyanide smells like. Do y'all know what cyanide smells like? It, it's scary, but let me get to the third chapter so we can talk about the significance of this event and 
who might have been the murderer. Chapter 3. Who was the Tylenol murderer? With over more than 140 police and FBI investigators on the case, the hunt was on. The only problem was, nobody had any trace of a lead. It wasn't until the police discovered the lot numbers that they understood where the contaminated pills came from, and there wasn't proper DNA testing like there is now. There also wasn't any surveillance cameras at the factory, which they were made. But no one could even discern whether or not the pills poisoned at the factory or on their way to the pharmacies and grocery stores. This, unfortunately, was most likely anticipated by the murderer, and they would know it would be to their advantage. Even with all the press attention and men and women working to find the killer, no single suspect has ever been officially charged or even taken to court for trial. The overall motive of this spree has been mostly thought to be on the acts of domestic terrorism, with the culprit wanting to inflict fear in America. Another possible motive was that the anonymous killer was a serial poisoner and did it to satisfy his or her need to kill. Lastly, the motive could have been to attack Johnson & Johnson directly, as Tylenol was, and still is, their best-selling product by far. One suspect that mostly everyone has been extremely suspicious of is James W. Lewis. He became the biggest suspect after trying to extort money out of Johnson & Johnson for $1 million in order to stop the killings. Lewis also gave detailed instructions on how anyone could have possibly injected the pills with cyanide. In regards to how and why he revealed why someone could have injected cyanide into the pills, Lewis claimed he wanted to be a good citizen and help the authorities with detailed sketches on how someone might have been able to pull this off. His past criminal record indicated that he had been arrested multiple times before, and this was often observed to be bizarre behaviors. However, no physical or any actual virtual evidence linking him to the crime has surfaced, so he is innocent. He did in fact serve 13 years for just the extortion towards Johnson & Johnson, however. Lewis to this day has maintained his innocence in this case, even though he has been the one and only suspect in this tragedy. His house was later raided by FBI in February of 2009 with boxes of evidence in his computer. This evidence later resulted in nothing and further put Lewis in between the realms of guilty and innocence. The consensus is now thought to have been the contaminated pills were not poisoned at the factory. Rather, they were taken out of the stores, poisoned, and then put back on the shelf unsuspecting buyer. As of 2009, Johnson & Johnson has put a $100,000 reward for information leading to a suspect and an arrest and conviction. To this day, that reward still sits unclaimed. Whether you believe it or not to be James Lewis is up to the many facts and evidence to determine whether it was him or someone else. Hopefully, this case will get solved while the killer has time to take his punishment, as it has been 40 years since the murder have taken place. Chapter 4. What was done in response? Due to the national dynamic, Jane did something that was a breakthrough for the time. They helped issue warnings and issued a national recall of all 31 million bottles stocked in the store nationwide. 
They also collaborated with state police and the FBI to fund and set out media awareness. They also had plans to even go door to door and collect bottles from houses. Schools and news stations had announcements to cease buying Tylenol, and no one else had succumbed to the cyanide lace pills. These efforts ended up costing Johnson & Johnson an estimated $100 million. But the long-lasting effect ended up benefiting Johnson & Johnson. Initially, thought that Tylenol would no longer pull sales. Eventually, it returned as a top seller in pain-relieving medicine within two months. This effort also put Johnson & Johnson in good light as responsible and caring and helped with their PR. Like stated before, they are, are still very committed to finding the killer and are still offering the $100,000 reward for concrete information. In response to what some call out this domestic terrorist act, two extremely important laws and for medicinal and food products were implemented. For one, it is now required that food and medicine have tamper seals in order for both consumers and stores to tell if the item has been tampered with. Secondly, there was a law implemented in 1983 to make tampering with products illegal, as it was technically legal to do so at the time. These two implementations prevent something like this ever happening again, so there was at least things that came out of it. While this event was a tragedy and changed the future of medicine and food forever, we will never forget and still do not have answers on who is responsible for the Tylenol killings of 1982. So, like I said before, the two major positive outcomes of this tragedy that happened in Illinois is that I'm sure all of y'all have noticed them before, but there is tamper seals in virtually all our food now and medicine actually. So let's say you're looking at a Pringles can. Well, first it has the cap, right? And then under it, it has that little foil wrap thing that you uh, unwrap to get to the chips. Well, it's stuff like that that helps both the consumer and the people who are selling the product uh, be able to obviously see if it was tampered or not. This is kind of a rev... It was revolutionary at the time because items just weren't like that. You didn't have tamper seals. So this really could have happened more commonly than it did. I'm sure there are way more cases than just the Tylenol murders of people poisoning or, you know, putting something foreign inside these uh, containers. But this is by far the biggest case out there about this. The other thing was the law that made tampering objects illegal. I'm, I'm honestly stunned that people legally could go in and mess with a, a product when they're not allowed, you know, when they're not official or anything. It was, it was legal to go to a product and go tamper with it. That's, that just blows my mind. I cannot believe someone did not think of that. And I wonder how many uh, times something was tampered with that they didn't know of or didn't report because it was, it was legal. That just astonishes me. Lastly, it, like I said, they have one major suspect that they have pinned down, I guess you could say. And the reason he's so suspicious is because he kind of pulled that ransom note out on Johnson & Johnson. Obviously, that doesn't prove it was him, but it does raise suspicions because he, it kind of sounds like he know, knew exactly what's going on. And the fact that he got raided even so much longer after that case 
back, you know, in 2009, that was almost, that was 27 years after the events that happened. But that's, you know, that still shows that people were very, very suspicious of him. He walks free. He is neither guilty or innocent, in my opinion, because there is no facts leading to either side. Whether it be him or somebody else, they still walk free. You know what I mean? It's it's disgusting that someone poisoned and tried to poison way more than seven people. You know, he tried to cause fear in America by putting cyanide in the most common medicine in America. And, you know, he walks free. And we'll probably never know who it was because as time goes by, the evidence, you know, dwindles. It's sad to see that justice like that is not met. But with that being said, it was 40 years ago. So hopefully we can move on with better terms and be able to use this horrible, tragic example continuously as we have. But that was episode eight of History of Our Mysteries. Um, I did not expect that to be this short. I was kind of leading for that to kind of go longer. If y'all like these shorter episodes, please let me know. Or if you like the longer episodes, please let me know. Let me know if there's any criticisms or if there's anything I can change or if y'all like what I'm doing, please let me know as well. But 